But anyways, good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? 2 Timothy 3, 16. And we're almost done with this, uh, the subject of uh, the doctrine of inspiration. And uh, uh, t- uh, today uh, will be our sixth hour, and we're going to be noting the liberal and conservative views of inspiration, which is tying into what we uh, finished off last uh, Wednesday with regards to uh, the, the effect of the Enlightenment, that movement, uh, that it, how it affected uh, biblical studies or the people's views of inspiration. So uh, it's a direct correlation to the, the Enlightenment, as I uh, left off with last Wednesday. So that's what we'll be doing here uh, this evening. And uh, so without further ado, let's take the moment of silent prayer, as is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit would cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit, who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired, and that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18, to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3, 16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So anything that's disturbing or distracting to you, let's not be concerned about that. Cast all anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your almighty word. We thank you, Father, for the grace, the faith, the salvation you're working on behalf of eternity past, the personal work of your Son at the cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, from regeneration to resurrection. We pray that the Holy Spirit do a mighty work to all of us here this evening, and I thank you for everyone that's in the chapel and those who might be viewing, or excuse me, or listening to these uh, services online through our various websites and podcasts. And so, Father, I just pray tonight that you would help each person in the audience to understand and apply what's being taught by the power of the Spirit. And I pray that also for myself, uh, that uh, by the power of the Spirit, you'll help me to bring forth your full counsel tonight with regards to the subject of the different liberal and conservative views of inspiration, which will help us to educate what's going on today uh, in the world with regards to the Bible and people's attitudes toward it. And I just pray, Father, that uh, this service as a result will be a blessing to the body of Christ now and in the future through the recordings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The doctrine of inspiration, we're continuing that uh, this study. It's a uh, seven-hour study. We're in the sixth hour here this evening. As you can see on the boards, and this is from my article on the doctrine of inspiration. By the way, if you, you do want to, everything that I've done here and will do here is in written form on our website at wenstrom.org. So if you want the doctrine of inspiration, you go to wenstrom.org. You see in the, 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 the front uh, a homepage, you just go to um, Written Library, and there's Doctrines and Exposition. So if you want to look at uh, uh, doctrines, there's the Doctrine of Inspiration. It's under Bibliology. So or you can just do a search there, and you'll find that Canonicity's on there, the Trinity's on there, and so uh, and also for the various books that uh, we've done, like Obadiah, uh, Jude, they're all on our website there, and you can search there. So the Doctrine of Inspiration, it contends that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human authors of Scripture, without, without destroying their individuality, their literary style, their personal interests and their vocabulary, God's complete and connected thought towards man was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture. The original languages of Scripture, therefore, contain the very words of God and therefore bear the authority of divine authorship. But tonight we'll be looking at some liberal and, con- and also con- uh, conservative views, some of the great theologians of the past, that, and their views of Scripture. And so we'll be looking at that here this evening. And of course, uh, the liberal views, uh, they, uh, they disagree with what the Bible teaches and what uh, conservative evangelical uh, uh, individuals believe in Christians, and uh, so they disagree with us. But as we pointed out in 2 Timothy uh, 3, uh, 
3.16 and 17, Paul writes that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the, as we see this great translation by the NIV, God-breathed. Uh, uh, so we see the word there in, it's, uh, in, the, in the original Greek is actually speaking of something literally. It is God-breathed. So uh, that definition that I gave you is, uh, is based upon what Paul teaches here and, and 2 Timothy 3.16, what uh, Paul, uh, Peter actually uh, taught in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Uh, the scripture's prophecy was not uh, the result of a, a man's uh, uh, imagination, but it was the Holy Spirit was moving individuals, the human authors of scripture, to put down in perfect accuracy God's complete and connected thought to mankind. So we left off last Wednesday in our class by noting that before the Enlightenment, the reason, reason uh, human reason, had been viewed as a custodian and servant of divine revelation. Again, I repeat, we left, on our, left off in our last class by noting that before the Enlightenment, reason had been viewed as a custodian and servant of divine revelation, meaning a person, they believe, submitted their reason to the authority of Scripture into the church. Now, human nature, the flesh, and of course the devil promotes this, he, the devil, and the flesh wants us to go by our human reasoning rather than what scripture says and we see this even in christian circles all the time and uh, the the temptation we all have because we're sinners by nature and practice yes we have a new nature the nature of christ and the indwelling of the trinity and the holy spirit but the devil's waging war against our thought processes it's the battleground and the angelic conflict is the human soul and the church is not uh, is, is, is susceptible to these attacks. And so, for instance, if you see it in the, in the natural, uh, you see it in Christian circles and, and it's outside um, the Bible, uh, the Bible, um, the Christian community. But in the Christian community, for instance, when it comes to the subject of marriage, a lot of people, and I had to face this when I was a young man, you know, oh, well, we love each other, and, uh, but no, but uh, this is not what God wants me to do. A lot of people get married based upon their emotions, how they feel, and, uh, and, and whatnot. And instead of going by what the Word of God is saying, and that, uh, like, for instance, when you come to Christian marriage, you're not to be unequally yoked. You're not to marry a non-believer. And I told you the story, a good friend of mine, uh, he, was, uh, he was going to get married to this woman who I, we knew that wasn't a believer, and my girlfriend at the time of 10 years was not a believer. Uh, and uh, she, she, good person, nice person, great person, great girl. Problem was, she did not, uh, she did not get this, Bibli uh, this Bible study that I was into, and uh, so she, got, she was afraid of that. And, of course, that's a sign that the devil's there because he uses fear, right? So I, was, I, told, I broke up with her, and I told my friend, you should do the same because she's not a believer, and don't kid yourself that you're going to change them. And, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to do that. If the Holy Spirit hasn't done that and you're dating them, uh, and if the, here's another sign. If they don't, they don't follow you in what you're doing. Go to Bible study. It tells you right there they're not the one. And, uh, you know, and so, uh, so they, that, you know that it's a right man, right woman if the woman is willing to follow the man wherever he may go. Okay? So we don't see, I didn't see that. And so he went ahead with his emotions. And I, you know, I'm not that I'm an emotional guy just like anybody else. I thank God. Uh, I, I got out of that relationship. It was the, the best thing I ever, ever did. And from there, I actually really, really, really took off. And uh, so it wasn't that she was holding me back. It was my love for her and my emotions toward her that were holding me back. It was not on her. And so, again, that's an example. People make their decisions in life, and, and when it comes to, like, marriage in the Christian community, based upon their emotions. And you see the people who are in marriage. They're, 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 you know, everybody goes through trouble in marriage. And so, you know, the people say, you know, in Christ, I've heard Christian women and men where they want to break up with their husband or wife. And, you know, God says even if through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, even if they're, you know, you marry them as a non-believer, okay? You're married to them. You know, you should stay with them because you might lead them to the Lord. But then if they want to leave, they want to leave, then you can let them leave and then marry somebody else, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. But, you know, a lot of people are divorcing in the Christian community. They're both believers for non-biblical justification, just like the non-Christian community. I, I can't remember the, where I read it, is that they, in the Bible Belt of all places, the, 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 the divorce rate is higher in the Christian community in the Bible Belt than it is outside the Christian community. 
and this is the Bible Belt. I'm not talking about Massachusetts or Iowa, where I, where I was, okay? That's stunning. So we need to understand something. Our emotions, you know, people, like, you know, for instance, um, like, for instance, I give you another example. People make their decisions and their attitudes through emotions rather than Bible doctrine, what the Spirit says in the Word of God. When it comes to, like, for instance, a political ruler, a leader that you don't like. And so I have, I have family members that just cannot stand President Biden. There's a lot of people who don't like him. And, uh, but I also met people who don't like, didn't like President Trump. Nobody likes anybody, right? So, so but the problem is when you, they have, instead of what the Bible says, you're to show respect for your leaders, okay? And Paul got belted in the face by a, a, a guard who, uh, because when he said, spoke evil of the, um, the high priest, who was no, he was a gangster, really. But he had authority, and he had a position that God had given to him. That, and so, therefore, Paul should have showed respect. And he apologized for, what, for that, for saying that. Paul. So all authorities from God should respect the authorities. We've studied this in Jude, right? So our emotions say, I, like to take, I don't like that president. I don't like, you know, I don't like this guy. I don't like this, this woman. You know, wait a minute. Not, calm your emotions down. Set them aside. What does Bible doctrine say? What is the Spirit saying in the Scriptures? It says respect your leaders. It doesn't say you have to agree with them or like them. Okay? But that's an example where doctrine, the Holy Spirit, and, and you know, we say doctrine, but always remember, it's the Holy Spirit that it produced doctrine. Okay? And so, it's the mind and thinking of Christ. So, I always like to make it, it's the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, doctrine is speaking to us. And remember that, as always. So, this is a, so, because I say that because it is a living book. So, as I said before, before the Enlightenment, reason had been viewed as a custodian and servant of divine revelation, meaning a person submitted their reason to the authority of Scripture and of the church. Now, however, the Enlightenment reversed all this in that it made revelation servant of reason in the sense that one examines truth with one's own intellect and decides for oneself what is true or false. And so, therefore, the Enlightenment presented a direct challenge to scriptural authority and thus inspiration and spawned many liberal views of inspiration. So, that's what we're going to be looking at, liberal and conservative views of inspiration. So, let's look at the liberal views. Now, before I say this, and I've touched upon this before, when I use the word liberal, I'm not looking, I'm not speaking in a political context. Liberal theology or liberal theologians are those individuals that reject the supernatural, okay? When we talk about, because I hear, and I've been guilty of this too, I hear Christians, and evangelical Christians and pastors, when they talk about liberal, they, they're thinking, they're, they're, they're calling these people liberal, but they're not really liberal because it, in, in a theological, theological sense because they believe in the supernatural. So I've seen them misuse the term. So you, one thing you will see with me, I'm always very concerned because I'm trying to learn from other Mistakes of other guys and my own mistakes in the past. Always define your terms. Always define things when you're speaking to somebody. And especially as a pastor. I never, I, I never assume everybody knows what I'm talking about. Because some of you might never heard some of the things I've said. Maybe you have. And so, uh, and, and so that's very important. So when I use the term liberal tonight, in, uh, when I use the term liberal in theology, I'm speaking of a view that rejects the supernatural, such as the resurrection of Christ, and prophecy and inspiration. So, uh, for instance, in the scriptures, you have the Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection or angels or not. So they disregarded the supernatural. They rejected it. Pharisees accepted all that, just like Jesus accepted all that stuff, and the apostles. And so they were in line, the Pharisees and the scribes were more in line with Jesus than the Pharise uh, Sadducees were, because the Sadducees were liberal in their theology. So the first liberal view of inspiration I, I want to note, was uh, formulated by a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher. That's how you say his name, Fred Friedrich Sch uh, Schleiermacher. And he was a German, of course. And in 1799, in his work on religion, Friedrich Schleiermacher rejected outright the, cog the cognitive approach of the Enlightenment by making the claim that theology was the study of the experience of God. And that the Bible was the record of religious experience of a particular group or people. And so this view challenged traditional views of inspiration as well as in the case with modernity. And what's modernity mean? 
And you'll hear terms, terms like that out there today. Well, modernity is, and for those who are on the, on the podcast, M-O-D-E-R-N-I-T-Y. You hear me use postmodern. We're talking about in America today, we're what we call in the postmodern era of America. So modernity, what is that when I talk about that? Well, it's the cultural worldview. And this is from the pocket dictionary, of, which is great. The, what is it called? Uh, yeah, it's the pocket dictionary. Come on. Of theological terms. It's, a great, it's in my Bible, uh, uh, Logos program. And I like to use it up here because they have little short definitions that I can use. I don't want to have big, long definitions. So modernity, is, they define it as the cultural worldview of the 19th and 20th centuries, of course, we could say the 21st, inherited from the Enlightenment and reflective of its values and belief systems. Modernity is epitomized by the belief that through the exercise of reason alone, we are capable of attaining knowledge, even knowledge of the divine, and that with such knowledge, humans can progress eventually to the point of creating a utopian or ideal human order, end of quote. So you see, this is putting the human, us, on the throne where God should be. That's, what, that's, that's, that's idolatry. Modernity is all about idolatry because as they say, it's a worldview, a cultural worldview that's engrossed America and Western Europe, and it's destroyed Western Europe, really. It used to be, used to be a great Christian presence in Europe, but that's gone within a couple of centuries. And America's following the same, same pattern, exact same pattern as Western Europe did. So uh, this modernity, as they said, is epitomized by the belief that through the exercise of reason alone, we're capable of attaining knowledge, even knowledge of the divine, and that with such knowledge, humans can progress eventually to the point of creating a utopian human order. Now listen to me, and to quote that again, listen to me, they, we can't do anything, we're spiritually dead. Look at that, we can acquire divine knowledge. The only reason why you and I have any knowledge of God is because God in his grace, through the spirit, is, is basically treated us in grace. We would know nothing if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. For instance, if to get saved, you're spiritually dead, which means that you have absolutely no desire to establish a relationship with God or seek God, to restore a relationship with God. That's found in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, they ran away and hid themselves. They didn't go, oh, God, forgive us. No, they ran away, and God had to seek them. That's exactly the pattern for every member of the human race since then. And he comes and seeks up. I wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking for me. I was running around, uh, you know, do, trying to be a rock star or a pro athlete or whatever I was trying to do. And he was looking for me. And it's the same thing for all of you. Some of you, got, he didn't have to hunt very far. You get saved at a young age. I, had, I was 19 by the time I got saved. So he had to hunt for me for a little while. But that's, he seeks us. So then once we get, then to understand the gospel so that you can make a decision to be saved... He has, the Holy Spirit has to make it understandable to us, the gospel, so that we can make a decision. And then once he does that, boom, he appropriates, the Spirit does everything that Christ accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. And we could say it's a session at the right hand of the ascension and session at the right hand of the Father as well. So again, the Holy Spirit's helping us every step in the way. Even as believers, we need the Holy Spirit to acquire knowledge of God and grow in, in knowledge of God. In fact, Paul talks about this in, uh, in Ephesians. Uh, look at uh, go to Ephesians quickly. It's Ephesians chapter one, verse fifteen. Ephesians one fifteen. Ephesians 1.15, and this is after he's going to say, now present a, pr a prayer that he offered up to the Father for the Ephesian Christian community, which is actually not just the Ephesians, but various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia that received this. And in the, the, the verses 3 through 14 are the great doxology of Paul, where he uh, praises the, uh, the, the work of the Father in eternity past in verses 3 through 6, and then the work of the Son at the cross in verses 7 through 12 and 13 and 14, he praises the work of the Holy Spirit. All of these things were all the work of the Spirit and the Son and the Father and eternity past are all uh, reasons why we should praise the Father. And so now he prays for them. In verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers, that I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spiritual wisdom or in other words, a wisdom that's produced by the Holy Spirit. 
the spiritual wisdom and revelation in your knowledge of him since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength. But notice, he's got to give this. He's asking the Father through the Spirit to give up the church and understanding as to the great power and love that's been directed to them towards because of their union identification with Christ. The Holy Spirit's got to do that. So whatever knowledge we have of God is from the Holy Spirit and, and God treating us in grace. So modernity flies in the face of that. It says we can acquire knowledge of God through the divine, through our own efforts. And that's just simply not the case. Well, that flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. So back to Schleiermacher on his, on his, uh, his uh, on religion. He says uh, that he rejected outright, as I said before, the cognitive approach of the Enlightenment by making the claim that theology, which is the study of God, that theology was the study of the experience of God. And that the Bible is the record of religious experience of a particular group of people. And this view, tra uh, traditional views of inspiration, as well as in the case with modernity. So Schleiermacher, in other words, uh, considered a religious experience as a, and I'm quoting uh, from him, a feeling of absolute dependence and not the communi uh, communication of substantive fact. You hear what he's saying? This is what's going on in Christianity today. And they're talking about revival. And I'm all for revival, which in the sense of resurgence of Christianity in America, absolutely. But it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't start without the communication of the word of God. The gospel to the non-Christian, because you want them to come into the body of Christ. Well, you've got to give them the gospel. And it's not, they're not going to, I mean, I know that you can get learned Bible doctrine. You can get, uh, I think you could even get saved by singing a song. But if they don't know what the issue is that you're under the wrath of God as a sinner, the gospel means nothing to you. You have to know what the bad news is to accept the good news. Why would you accept the good news if there's no bad news? Okay, why do I have to believe in Jesus now? Because you're under the wrath of God. Oh, that's a good reason. I mean, people don't realize this. Tell them the bad news. It might not make you popular. But say, hey, the good news is Christ came and died for you on the cross, and rose from the dead, and whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have eternal life. So experience is what comes first in a lot of Christians' minds today. It's about experience. And even the non-Christian, when it comes to approach to God, they want to experience something. They don't want to listen to substantive fact, propositions like this book. Interesting what Paul does in Romans. He does it in Ephesians. He does it everywhere. Colossians. Especially Ephesians is very pronounced. In Ephesians, he gives you what we call in, in theology the indicatives of the faith in the first three chapters. They're declarations, assertions about God, who he is, what he's done for us in the past, what he's doing for us now, what he'll do for us in the future, the consequences of doing his will, and the consequences of not doing his will. They're facts. They're substantive facts. Okay? They're declarative statements. And then he starts talking about the, the, what we call the imperatives, What's the application? Imperative means a command, a prohibition. What do you do now? Well, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians gives the application of the first three chapters of Ephesians. And he does this in Romans. And he does this also in Colossians. He does this everywhere. So what I'm telling you is, if you don't have the, uh, the, 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 the declarative statements, the indicatives of the Christian faith in your mind, we can't talk about application. You're putting the cart before the horse. And when you talk about application, we're talking about experiencing God. Does God want you to experience his presence? Absolutely. Of course he does. When we're in fellowship with God as believers, and we, we're confessing our sins, and we're obeying God's word, we're going to experience God. And so we can experience the power of God, we can experience the presence of God, all of those things. But it has to be based upon sound doctrine. Doctrine. When I talk about doctrine in that context, substantive fact, declarative assertions in Scripture. Because that's how Paul addressed things. Let me give you what, who God is and what he's done for us and in the past, present, and now in the future. And results of obeying his will and the results of not obeying his will. And all those things. Then, once he tells us that, then we can start talking about experience or application. Now, other liberal theologians viewed Scripture as having, and I'm quoting, varying, de varying degrees of inspiration, end of quote. So they understood, these liberal theologians, that de rejected the inspiration of, of, of the, of the uh, conservative view of inspiration. They understood inspiration in terms of a heightened literary genius found in the writers 
of Scripture. Uh, Albert Riechel and Adolf Van Harnack was a, a tremendous scholar, liberal scholar. They continue to modernize uh, approaches to the Bible. Higher criticism would follow this by questioning the Bible's authenticity, dating, and origins. And the most famous uh, being Julius Wellhausen. Some of you might know about him, Julius Wellhausen. He had this documentary hypothesis in the, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, and he called into question the dating and authorship of the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. And so he would say, you know, J, P, so the different, they had different, uh, different gods, is what he had. And like, and it was not just, he didn't realize that God was called by, the, the triune God was called by different names, you know, for describing him. And so they, he gave them, he gave him, you know, J and P, that was his hypothesis and stuff. So he was, his, his view was, was very famous and, and very populous, even still today, amazingly, even though it's been refuted many times over. In 1835, David Strauss, he began the movement that is still around in the 21st century, namely the quest for the historical Jesus. And I don't know if you've heard of that. It's probably, you've probably heard on the History Channel somewhere. And this is very, very controversial and at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century. So Strauss, in 1835, David Strauss, began the movement of uh, the quest for the historical Jesus, which sought to get behind the suspected, superstitious elements of the gospel accounts and discover the quote-unquote true Jesus of Nazareth. So basically, because Jesus, when Jesus did miracles, you know, well, we can't have that Jesus. Why? Because I don't believe I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe anybody can, can uh, perform miracles. I don't believe anybody can walk on the water. Okay. Well, that's all right. You. This is when I talk about opinions and views and your your intellect. Well, this is what the Bible says about itself. So what they want to do is edit the Bible, edit the gospel. So everything. This is what they do. It's amazing. So they will take out all these affirmations about Jesus' deity and remove them from the gospels. That's the true Jesus, true Jesus. And the, the reason why they, they, again, this is the result of the enlightenment. It flies in the face of their human reason. I've never seen anybody walk on the water, therefore it couldn't be. Okay? You know, but hey, I don't believe this guy is Julius Caesar. How can you say that? Well, I didn't see him. How could he be existing? I mean, that's how stupid it is. So you have to be there for something to be taking place? Well, you might as well forget all human history and all the, the you, JFK didn't exist, Reagan didn't exist, Lincoln didn't exist, because you didn't see him. I mean, really, let's put, well, this goes back way, because I'm talking about way back, they'll tell you. Okay, way back, right. Okay, so it's so subjective. Wait, now you go to him, well, what about the gospel accounts? They're historically reliable. In fact, there was a man named Sir William Ramsey, great archaeologist. He wasn't always a Christian. He went out to find out if Luke, his account in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, were historically reliable. He became a Christian. He became a Christian because he was honest. He was academically honest. And listen to me, if you're academically honest, and I'm talking about the non-Christian, if you're academically honest, the Spirit's going to lead you right to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because you can't look at this book if you're really going to be, you know, objective about it. You're really going to be objective. You're going to come away. This, this, is, this, book, this book is supernatural. And there's no, listen to me, there's nothing anywhere anybody has ever been able to find about the Bible which would cause, which would doubt its historicity or its historical reliability. People have been making assertions about the Bible, and like even Dr. Luke and what he wrote, but archaeology and more more. Uh, evidence from archaeology, we found out Luke was right on the button. Right on the button about things, where they used to think he was not. You know, because now we got more understanding of things, and archaeology plays in, into this, and now this, Dr. Luke has been vindicated. And this is all over the Bible. Because people have their reasoning, okay, it comes first. Okay? But that's not true. So let the Bible speak for itself. There's people who are involved in the historical quest for Jesus. They're not academically honest. It's an historically reliable document. We have more documentary evidence for the, for the, the, that, for the New Testament than any other work of antiquity. In fact, you have over 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament, and now not even talking about the Latin and the Coptic. And each, you get over 20,000 copies of the New Testament. Whereas you get the works of Thucydides, 
You got the works of Herodotus. We got Tacitus. We talk about guys like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. We don't doubt the historicity of that these uh, personages that they talk about existed. And they, their manuscript annotation, it doesn't even go up to my shoulders or my kneecap if you stack them on top of each other. And yet the Bible is called into question. It's rel historical liability. And again, it's because they're not, they're putting their emotions, their reasoning ahead of what the facts are. Let always, and this is true as a Christian too, let the facts lead us. Don't be afraid of dissent because dissent is good. Because I found that when you, people dissent from you, it causes you to, under, okay, why do I believe what I believe? It causes you to investigate. A lot of the, my best studies were just because someone said, I said, yeah, what is about that, you know? And so I went to really delve into the scripture. It's like, you know what? I'm glad that person came out and questioned my, my particular view because now it's made me sure and gave me even greater conviction if they hadn't come in and challenged me. It's all right to be challenged. It's, but it takes some work, okay? So follow the evidence. And we talk about a Christian, follow the evidence of what scripture is leading us. Not what you wanted to say, and understand, we all have pre, pre, we always have prejudices before we come into Scripture. Got to be honest, but to be aware of the fact that you could be prejudicial, okay? So you be you have certain prejudices. So be aware of that. So when something comes and it it, it, it it contradicts what you feel or what you think, especially for new Christians and helping new Christians, hold on, okay? You know what you feel. The Bible's always going to challenge us in every culture, whether it's India, Pakistan, or United States, or Europe, Africa. Every culture has a problem with the Bible. Every single culture. Of course it would. Of course it would. If it didn't, I would question it. <laughs> so, despite the challenge of modernity and higher criticism, the 19th and 20th century had several conservative scholars uphold the inspiration of the Bible. And there are many, and I, I'll just give you a few. Uh, some of the most significant, James Orr, Charles Hodge, and A.A. Hodge. And you could throw B.B. Uh, Warfield also and the great Westminster theologian and, uh, and Lewis Berry Schaefer as well. They were more than up for the challenge waged by those who rejected the inspiration of scripture or he uh, was significant and Warfield was too. He held to what we call the verbal plenary view of inspiration. And the, view, the verbal plenary view of inspiration. And as I see on my board, on my definition on the board for this, verbal signifies the words of the original languages of scripture whereas plenary uh, means full or complete as opposed to partial. Thus, verbal plenary inspiration, as we pointed out, we studied this, expresses the idea that each and every word in the original languages of Scripture are inspired by God who gave full expression to his thoughts in the original languages of Scripture. He influenced, God did, the Holy Spirit, the very choice of the words used within the personality and the vocabulary of the writers so that the Bible is not only the word of God, but it's also the word of men. So we see that Hodge and Warfield, they described inspiration as, and I'm quoting, the superintendence by God of the writers and the entire process of their writing. So very important. Warfield, I think he fought in the Civil War. I can't remember which side it was. He was back in the 1800s. But Warfield is a tremendous, he's not, he's not a, uh, a dispensationalist, okay? But he was, his, he was amazing. And he influenced Schaefer. Okay, and, he, and Hodge was right there with him. So Hodge and Warfield, tremendous, and they influenced Schaefer and the people that were ordained by Schaefer, like the Beams and the Pentecost and the Wolverine, who, who, who took over for Schaefer uh, from Dallas as Dallas president. And so all these people we have owe a debt of gratitude. They, they're part of our Christian heritage. And as I said before, one of these days we're going to do a thing on church history. And not in detail, but a church history. You get an amazing appreciation for where you came from. We stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, not, I don't care who you are in the last 20, 100 years, 50 years, we owe men before us for their hard work and their diligence in studying the scriptures. So Hodge and Warfield described inspiration as the superintendents by God of the writers and the entire process of their writing, which resulted in, and I'm quoting, the absolute infallibility of the record in which the revelation once generated appears in the original autographs, end of quote. So we'll be talking, he's talking about there at the end, inerrancy, which we're going to talk about. We're going to do a four-hour study of inerrancy on Wednesdays after we finish off inspiration next week. So the verbal 
plenary view of inspiration, which we noted in one of our classes, held by Warfield and Hodge, became found a foundational tenet of American fundamentalism and in the, in the evangelical movement as well, which would follow it. So this view, this view regards the apostles and the early church to have believed likewise regarding inspiration, while on the other hand, others have suggested that the Bible has only ever been considered infallible and inerrant in matters of faith and practice, or in other words, not in matters of history, geography, and science. There's a view out there, even in the evangelical circles, that, yeah, I believe in the inspiration of scripture, but I don't think the Bible's right on history or geography or science. Now, here's something very important. Now, I've had some Christian friends who are big time into science, and they're constantly fighting uh, the atheists about creationism, okay? And, 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 and the problem is that when they go to try to defend the Bible in history and science and everything, and, and take on science, and, and when I talk about science, secular science, atheistic science, okay? They try to interpret the Bible as if it was teaching science, like they go to Job. No, it's not a science book. The Holy Spirit was not teaching science to Job, and wasn't teaching science uh, to, to, uh, in Genesis to, with Moses, okay? They, 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 they have a different perspective of us. Yes, did God create the time, matter, space, continuum out of nothing? Yes, okay? But there are some things in Scripture where people try, like in Job, you see it a lot, where they're trying to uh, fight the, uh, the science and, with the Bible, and they're using the Bible incorrectly, okay? They're using it incorrectly. Because they, weren't, they didn't have, listen, they didn't have a, a, a 21st century mind or thinking the way we do. I'll give you an example. When it comes to history, the Gospels. The Gospels are not, a, when we look at a biography, the Gospels are not a biography of Jesus, Jesus in the modern sense. For instance, in the ancient world, they didn't write biographies like that, first of all. We write biographies chronologically in time. This is when he was a child, this is who he was born, where he lived, and the, or she, and boom, boom, this is where they did in this year, and then the next year went to college, and they went for president, blah, 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 they got married, had 50 million kids, and it just tells you the, their life, okay? Like Churchill, or, I love biographies, I read Churchill, you know, Ulysses S. Grant and Sherman and their memoirs, or anything I can get, Stonewall Jackson, or those guys, but anything I get my hands on, okay? So but they, the gospel's not even written like that at all. There's so many events in Jesus' life, like John said at the end of his gospel, that the, all the books in the world couldn't contain all these things. He's using hyperbole, but the thing is, basically, Jesus, is, we, have, we take your pick what you want to use. So the gospel writers had different approaches to their gospels. So, for instance, the, the Matthew was, not that we can't learn from this, Gentiles, but it was certainly, definitely, because of all the quotations of the Old Testament, designed to show to the Jew that Jesus was the Messiah. Whereas Mark was kind of headed toward the Romans, you know, his approach. And then you had uh, Dr. Luke, and then you had John, whose book was, the gospel was written around the seven miracles of Jesus, the seven signs, they call it. But they didn't, they didn't, you know, some things are chronological, but a lot of times they're not chronological. They weren't intended to be chronological, life of Jesus. In fact, people say, I've had family, we're missing years of Jesus. What was he doing? Like as if he was smoking pot or something. Like, you know, like a lot of teenagers were in 1985, whatever, when they were 16. For 12, we hear him at 12, and then we don't hear him until it's 30. What was he doing? Well, it tells you, he summarizes what he does in Luke. When it says, well, he grew in grace and, he grew in grace and with uh, favor with God and men, right? So he grew up. He just had nothing. We're not going to talk anything spectacular about it. But people want to know. I want to know. I want to know. Okay? We don't know. It doesn't really matter. Because if it was mattered, the Holy Spirit would have it in there. But he doesn't. So there's a problem. I think, well, there's a problem. You are trying to interpret the Bible from your 21st century you, you, uh, look at biographies, perspective. Of, they didn't do that kind of work. They didn't do that. They turned certain events in a person's life to show something about what they were trying to uh, uh, portray about the person. Okay? So this is what I'm talking about. Bible, when you talk about uh, science or history, some people do disregard it. So the view I have uh, that... Um, Warfield and Hodge have, but we have, it regards the apostles in the early church who have believed that, uh, likewise, regarding inspiration, while on the other hand, others have suggested that the Bible has only ever been considered infallible and inerrant in matters of faith and practice, or in other words, not in matters of history and science. Thus, 
this view, they believe that the original authors were inspired, but only intended those matters within the text that pertain to Christian instruction to be inerrant. So if the Bible talks about the creation of the heaven and earth, the time matter space continuum, we can't really trust it. Okay? But the burden of proof is on them. Why? Always ask why. Why? What evidence do you have that this is not true? In fact, we know from Hebrews 11, it comes down to faith now. Believe in the things that are not seen. We weren't there at creation, but God's telling us through the human authors of Scripture, this is what took place. So at some point, we have to have faith. And the person who has into science or the atheist, I love when there's an evolutionist, and they go, well, that's a lot of faith. It takes more faith to believe what you did. That we all came from a blob? Seriously? From natural processes? And you're telling me, as complex as you are, and you're, you're the retina in your eye, or your, or your fingerprints, or, I mean, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're amazing. Just you, and then creation, earth, the, the galaxies and the, and the solar systems. Are you kidding me? You're going to tell me this was an accident? Don't insult my intelligence. It takes more faith to, on your part to believe what, uh, what's his name, uh, Darwin said. And even Darwin, who, by the way, his father was a pastor, I think is a little business toward daddy. You know, and he didn't even believe, he says it's up to me, that my view is up for investigation. But you know what? His disciples took it and, and, the, and people who are the children of the Enlightenment, they took it and ran. And Darwin had no intention to go that far. Read what he says. But you won't hear that. But they have more faith. It takes more faith to believe what they believe than what the Bible says. Okay? So, they believe, this view believes that the original authors were inspired, but only intended those matters within the text that pertain to Christian instruction to be inerrant. Now, we need, uh, we're coming near the end here, but in the 20th century, uh, when we come to the Catholic Church now, I've talked about Catholic Church and canonicity, they've always maintained that God is the author of the Bible. But there's something we're going to talk about, and I have talked about, that flies in the face of what us evangelicals and conservatives believe. In the 20th century, the Second Vatican Council, you might have heard of this, they reaffirmed inspiration of the Bible by writing the following. The divinely revealed realities which are contained and presented in the text of sacred scripture have been written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That is, to compose the sacred books, God chose certain men who all the while he employed them in this task, made full use of their faculties, of their own faculties, faculties and powers, so that though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no more. Sounds like us. This view of inspiration produces their view of inerrancy. And they say, since therefore all that the inspired authors of sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit. We must acknowledge, they say, that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided into the sacred Scriptures. However, there's a caveat. Of course, we talked about this. The Catholic view differs from the conservative views, primarily in regards to interpretation. They say, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. The magisterium, they call it. Yet this, they say, is not superior to the Word of God, but is, is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it at the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. And then they say all that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. End of quote. I don't believe what they believe. And neither do the reformers do. Luther, Calvin, Swingley. It came down to authority. But we have the Holy Spirit. There's not one man, the Pope, that makes all the decisions on what, we, what this is saying. When I told you I was raised a Roman Catholic, and when you ask the Catholics in the family, okay, so what does that mean? Well, you'd have to ask the priest. You'd have to ask if the Pope knows. So we can't read it. Really. But if you read the Bible and you say, oh, and I start reading, I get, when I get saved, I get into doctrine, it's like, I gave it, and we get, we get the Holy Spirit. So he's the author in Scripture, human, a divine author of Scripture. He helps us understand it. He leads you into all truth, doesn't it say? Didn't Jesus say that? So why do I need the Pope? In fact, that was the whole problem with Calvin and Luther. They said, I have a problem with you, with that. 
because it flies in the face of Scripture. And that's why they didn't, and we'll see this when we get to see the study of the history of the English Bible. The popes didn't want, the, the reason why they, they did this, the popes didn't want the plowboy to know what, he did, what they knew. What if they knew? They didn't want them to know because then it would take the power away from them. It was a power thing. And remember, the Roman Catholic Church early on, in the first couple of centuries of the church, like the third, fourth century, you had great men like Jerome, who, who did the Latin translate, the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, Old Testament. He was a great scholar. A lot of good, but what happened is, as time went on, it deteriorated. They, as they moved around the world, they, they were incorporating paganism into the Christianity, and that's what we call syncretism. And God doesn't, you know, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. So that was the problem that happened to Roman Catholicism. They got corrupted, and you got the power of the popes corrupted. And it's so bad now in Rome now that the leadership, they want the leadership to, which, to interpret the Bible. And the, the last pope retired. Popes don't retire. You know why he retired? Because he was asked to clean up the mess with the pedophile mess that was going on, which we know a lot about in Massachusetts. Turns out there was a, I didn't, he didn't make a move on me. One of the, the priests, I thought was a good guy, they were both, uh, they were both uh, involved in pedophilia. And that there's a big thing going on in the world, even in, they're talking about in leaders in the world, but in the Catholic Church, the Pope couldn't, he it was such a bad problem, he retired. When the next guy who came along was this guy, he can't do anything about it. Nothing to do with it. It's so entrenched. So these guys are going to interpret scripture for us? The scripture says that stuff is sin. It's an abomination. I mean, you're abusing children? So forget about, you know, one man make it the only one who can make a valid interpretation of scripture. We all have the Holy Spirit. That's why the Reformation took place. So we see that, uh, that uh, the Roman Catholic Church, it had, you know, it has the same view of inspiration, but they fall off the wagon there when they start talking about the Pope being the only one who can understand and make the right interpretation. So, Karl Barth, he was going to wrap up with this. Karl Barth from, lived from 1886 to 1968, very famous. I'm not a real big fan of his. And uh, Karl Barth, Barth was, the, was of the conviction that the Bible was secondary as revelation to the revelation in and through Jesus Christ. And that the Bible became God's word when God spoke through it. That's what he believed. You can see why I didn't like it. God's, the, the, the word of God is the very words of God. The word of God is the very words of God. It's the mind, thinking Christ. Christ is the, is the word of God in flesh, human, as a human being, and this is in written form. Okay? He's the living word. This is the written word. And it's the, this written word is living too because of the Holy Spirit. So Karl Barth was of the conviction again that the Bible was secondary as revelation to the revelation in and through Jesus Christ. And that the Bible became... God's word when God spoke through it. It's still God's word when he spoke through it to the human authors of scripture 2,000 to 3,000 years ago. It's still God's word. It's put down in writing. Thus, we can see that although Barth held a high view of scripture to a certain extent, his primary concern was to preserve the preeminence of Christ and the sovereignty of God. Uh, another man named Paul Tillich lived from 1886 to 1965, kind of the same period that uh, Barth did. He believed in the inspiration of scripture as mediator between revelatory events recorded in the Bible and the contemporary experiences of the reader. And then we have liberation theologians. Oh, I ran into some liberation theology guys in Massachusetts. Oh, I'll tell you a quick one about that. Liberation theologians, they do not have a high view of Scripture. Uh, but instead, they view it through the lens of oppressive systems. Some of you might know what I'm talking about, okay? It's a, what we call a hermeneutic of suspicion. And thus, the advocate, they advocate for the overthrow of such systems. Let me give you, you see that? Oppressive systems, okay? I'll give you a funny story. I'm sitting in Cafe Nero in Dedham, Massachusetts, near my hometown, Norwood. And I used to love to go there because it was an old library. It was an Italian coffee shop. And I could bring, people brought their laptops and there's all types of people from all over the world, okay? Different languages, ethnic, ethnic groups, every, whatever. I love the place. It was, only, it was kind of a refuge to get out of the house from the craziness going on with my mother, you know, with the, with the dementia. So you, you go there, and, and I remember I ran into this guy, and he actually was looking at what I was doing. I had this happen to me all the time. 
what do you, what do you read? And I, what did I say? Oh, you're a pastor? And they're looking at the books I had or whatever. I was looking on my computer screen. I one time, I'm tired, working on Jude one time. And I, this guy said, oh, that's really cool what you're writing on. I was writing, I was like, he's watching what I'm reading, writing here. Like I was, you know, it's like, really? So we had a conversation. But anyways, I'm sitting, and this guy, uh, this gentleman, he comes up to me. And he says, oh, so you're a pastor, brother. I said, listen, yeah, I'm a pastor too. So oh, you ordained at Duke. And um, I said, oh, really? And that's a good school, but I knew that it was pretty liberal in their theology. And they, they believe in liberation theology. So he said, this is what he told me. He says, when I started talking about scripture and stuff and things, he goes, well, you can't, it's, you know, you can't really interpret it properly because, you know, you're a white person. Because you're, you're, you're oppressing, your view of scripture is oppress, is oppressed blacks in the past. I said, maybe my forefathers did, but it wasn't me. Heck, my first friends growing up, I was, were black. And I remember we had a racist cop on one side, and we used to get mad at me because I was, I was uh, hanging out with the black kids in the neighborhood. Which was, so he, so this is the thing, and this is, doesn't matter what race, it could be black, it could be, this is the kind of thing you have an oppressed, like fe- feminism. They, they believe this is, we have an oppressive theology because, because we're, we're, we're interpreting it from the patriarchal view of things and that women should be subjected to men rather than the fact that we're just going what the text says. But they say, no, you're prejudiced. And I said, well, that's pretty subjective. <laughs> so, so basically, you're saying I'm, I'm being racially prejudiced by my interpretation of scripture, but aren't you being racially prejudiced to me because I'm white? I haven't, I haven't persecuted you. I haven't persecuted your, how did you, I said, and his father was a pastor, I said, how did your father, how did your father think? And, well, he doesn't hold to my, uh, this view, he holds to what I believe. <laughs> I said, you should listen to your father. <laughs> but he was a nice guy, young guy, but I just, all I could think was, you blew all that money going to Duke. <laughs> all that money for an education, and they, they, they led you right down the wrong road. So liberation theologians do not have a high view of scripture, but instead view it through the lens of oppressive systems. Uh, a hermeneutic of suspicion, they call it, and thus advocate for the overthrow of such systems. Process theologians understand all things, including God, as in process, and, uh, quote unquote, and thus as constantly changing and adapting to contemporary reality. Scripture, then, in this view, is one potential source that helps us to see our own story and the unfolding of God, they say. Feminist theologians view approach, uh, they, uh, the, 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 uh, the feminist theologians view approach Scripture with a critical eye toward anything oppressive toward women and uh, willing to reject those portions of scripture that might foster the subjugation of women. So when Paul goes out and says, wives, obey your husbands in all things in the Lord, that's oppressive, okay? That's a patriarchal culture and that's oppressive to women. That's what they say. So I, so, you know, so they basically look at subju- a, a, a woman uh, being subordinate to her husband as an oppressor. Whereas, see, here's where they brought the lie from the devil. The devil brought the lie. Doesn't the son and the spirit subordinate themselves to, to the father? Yeah. Well, are they the father oppressing the son and the spirit by subjugating? Are you having them subordinate themselves to, to, to the father? Uh, well, yeah. Well, see, so subordination is a lie. Is when you're subordinate, being subordinate to the, a political leader or, or a husband, all right, or, or, or your parents. Teacher, or the, this is what's going on in the culture. This disrespect for the coaches, you know, they, they, they have this view, this feminist, that it's oppressive to us. But being subordinate is not oppressive. And here they make the distinction with the father says, well, that's the father husband stance. That's, that's oppressive as well. How is that possible? But see, they, of course, are on their gender and their thinking. And again, this is where they take the culture and try to impose it onto the Bible. 21st century culture. It's in America, uh, the Bible is is offending the feminist movement and those involved in feminism. And I'm not just talking about women, but men who are feminists themselves. So postmodernism, I'm going to lead off with this. Postmodernism challenged the notion that authoritarian for the human divine is knowable and available to provide meaning. So, in other words, postmodernism, as we talked about, they don't think you could get to the Because it was written 2,000 years ago. Really? Okay? So, of course you can't. You know, 
exhaustively what the author is saying? Is the Holy Spirit? No. But you, for instance, if you read, you know, you read, let's say, Ephesians, okay? Or you read the Gospels, or whatever book you want to talk about, okay? Or the Gospels. You can investigate the historical context. You can learn the language. And yes, it's not, it's not really difficult. I understand it's, it's the first chapter. Some guys think it's difficult. But overall, as I said before, the rest of the Bible, in general, is pretty easy to understand. And in that the Supreme Court said that some are more difficult than others. A few were something like that, but most are pretty easy to understand. So that was 2,000 years ago. We can we get that point. And so therefore, they, they, they're basically, they're looking at the interpretation of the Holy Spirit. They're looking at Scripture as like some kind of fine element that we can never get to. Not really go to level, but we can never end, get to the bottom. That's just not true. It was written, can we read somebody that, uh, like for instance, we go on a, Papyrus and find these ash ashes of um, of um, the ancient world, and we see these these letters that are written in papyrus, and somebody's writing to his father, you know, or his mother, you know, and we can read that, and that's Koine Greek, the same language as New Testament, so we can read that, we can read this, but to get at the fuzziest point of the Bible, right? so thus postmodernism, okay, is both the interpretation of of a literal as well as both the historical as the product of really two minds. Thank you.